Tonight we're back in Revelation as we've been. I'm not texting. I'm trying to open something here. Uh, we're back in the book of Revelation where we've been all semester and where we're spending this semester taking out hop, skip, and a jump. And we actually skipped a few chapters this week uh, from two weeks ago to Revelation chapter 12. So you can open it uh, to it yourself or read there in your handout. When I was um, a junior in high school, I got very sick. Uh, and it was not a very fun time in my life. Uh, early November of that year, I had my second ACL reconstruction. Uh, ACL is a thing in your knee that holds your knee together, apparently. You kind of need it. Um, and it was actually it was my second ACL reconstruction. I was eight months uh, from having had surgery and rehabbed my right knee when I tore up my left knee and had to have surgery on it. So uh, apparently I have a low pain tolerance because a girl my age that went to school with me tore hers at the exact same time and is like wearing high heels like two weeks later. I hate her still for that. Um, but I knew from my first surgery, one, that I have a low pain tolerance, and two, that it was just the few weeks, you know, the time right after surgery is not fun. Um, and PT and rehabbing your knee after surgery is not fun. But after the surgery, as the weeks began to add up, and as we got into Christmas break, we started to notice a few things. One, my rehab had completely stalled. Uh, I was not getting any more movement in my knee that I should have been getting at that point. I noticed that I was hungry, uh, like normal, uh, but I would sit down to eat a meal of food, and after a few bites, I would feel like I was stuffed. Uh, I then somehow realized um, I've lost 20 pounds since my surgery, um, and I had some other things going on, and so we started to ask questions, what is going on uh, with my body? And it's kind of anticlimactic how it ends, that's not the point, uh, how it, I, it ends up my knee was infected, and I spent a week in the hospital getting it cleaned out, and on heavy meds. But why I bring that story up is because as I, my health was spiraling um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm left just to wonder what is going on. I started going to doctors, um, asking questions. None of, no doctors that we went to could figure things out. I even went to an infectious disease doctor. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those. I had never been to one before and I've never been near one since. Uh, and I'll never forget, he asked my dad to leave the room, which was weird. Uh, and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I just want to ask you, is there any reason I need to test you for AIDS? What? Like, I mean, that was the first, like, I had, I had already been having the, like, do I have cancer? Like, is this it? Is this what God wants for my life? Like, I was there mentally and emotionally. AIDS was nowhere on my radar at that point. Me and my parents... We had a general sense, right? Something is not okay here. But we had no clue what was going on. I knew something was not right, but I didn't know the real story. I didn't know the story behind the story of what I was experiencing. Many times in life, and maybe you can, you can recall something like this for yourself... There are many times in life where we come to find, in one way or another, that there is a whole other story in the background of whatever's going on in our life or in the world, right? Or in politics, that's a good example. Um, there's another story, the story of what is really going on. And very often, when we find out what the real story is, we often find that the remedies that we were trying to use to fix whatever was going on were actually quite useless, useless because... They had not taken into account the real story behind the story. For the Christian, 
when it comes to life in this world, uh, for ourselves and as we look at it out there, the Christian knows that there is always a story behind the story. Because there's the story, there's the ultimate story that is always behind every other story. And you remember, we've been saying this all along about the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation, really. It was written by a real person, written to real people in real churches, living real lives in real places with real struggles and real doubts, right? That's who this letter was written to. And so it's written to us as well. And they had questions, questions like this. If Jesus really has conquered, and if Jesus really is the king, and if everything in this world has really been put under his feet, why do I as his follower feel like I am under everyone else's foot? If we have been crucified with Christ, and we have been raised with him, and we've been seated with him in heavenly places, why does my life sometimes maybe frequently seem like it dips all the way into the depths of hell? All these kinds of questions, right? Well, tonight in Revelation 12, we go deeper. We keep going deeper with John. We're told here in Revelation 12, the story of the grand cosmic drama that puts all of life and all of history in its proper perspective. That's what we find in Revelation 12. Ask yourself, have you ever wondered why is life so hard? Especially if you're a Christian, I know you've struggled with this. Because there's something underlying for all of us as Christians. We think things are supposed to get better in some sense, right? And if you ever ask, why is life so hard? Well, what John will see in Revelation 12 and tell us about tonight is that there's a reason that life is so hard. It's because there is a war going on. There is a cosmic conflict that has been raging from the beginning of time. That is what we're told about in Revelation 12. And there's actually a neat key right before we launch into this. I want you to see this. Put your eyes on it. There's actually a neat key to the way the rest of Revelation works here in chapter chapter 12. We're going to read what looks like three different things. Verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 12, and verses 13 through 18. But this is what I want you to notice about those three sections of this passage. They kind of seem different, but they're telling us the exact same thing. Three different ways. So with that, let's read about this cosmic conflict here in Revelation chapter 12. We're going to start in the last verse of chapter 11 here. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen with His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it." She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I read that like there was more, but that's the end, sorry. Thus ends... The reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing to the reading and preaching of it. So, as we come here to Revelation 12, what I'm trying to lay before you here at the outset is we're not so much reading something new here, but we're actually being told something that we've seen before, but we're now told in a different way. Chapter 6, we read about the seals. Uh, and all the suffering and calamity that comes from the opening of the seals. In chapter 7 and 8, you can read about trumpets that are kind of like the seals. And now we get to chapter 12, and there's a story of cosmic conflict, okay? And I want to see three things about this cosmic conflict. The who, the how, and the end, okay? Let's dive in. First, the who of this conflict. Who are these characters? It's kind of weird, right? There's a red dragon. There's a woman giving birth. I don't... Is this Game of Thrones? If you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, well, first, let's take the woman, right? Well, interesting to note, cut right to the chase, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God are often referred to as a woman. For example, our call to worship tonight, Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. It's to his people that he says that to. Paul picks up this theme in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. She is our mother. We are part of that people of God. So what we have here throughout the Bible, we see the redeemed community of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, personified as a woman. And so we have here in Revelation chapter uh, 12, you see here that she's clothed with the sun. Uh, she has the moon under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars. And we've said it every Yes, Revelation is filled with images, but what kind of images are they? Bible images. Thank you. Interesting. 
about the number 12 and about the sun and the moon and the stars. There was a guy named Joseph. Maybe you heard of him. He had a multicolored coat and he had a dream. And he had a dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him. What is going on here? Right? Joseph was one of 12 sons. His father was Jacob, whose name also happened to be Israel. Right? So we see these images repeated here in Revelation chapter uh, 12. She has royal dignity. Why does she have royal dignity? Well, who is her son? Her son is none other than Jesus himself. Verse 5, echoing Psalm 2 about the Messiah, that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we're told that he's caught up to God in his throne. So in that short little phrase, we're just told about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He's born, he lives his life, he dies, he's resurrected, and he's taken back to Jesus, right? Who's the dragon? That's, that's what we all want to know, right? Uh, Well, it tells us, verse 9, look at verse 9. He's that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Verse 10, the accuser of our brother. This is who the devil is. I don't know what you've heard about the devil. I don't know what you believe about the devil. I don't know what you think Christians think about the devil. But here it is. This is who the devil is. He's an accuser and he's a deceiver. That is who he is, and that is what he does. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, calls him the father of lies. That's Satan. That's the devil. All right, so we, we have the characters there. And so what's set for us here now is the stage of cosmic conflict. We have the stage set. And so we look at that and we go, okay, puppet show, great. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? Well, first, I think it's worth mentioning this. First... This is symbolic imagery, right? We do not need to fear a red dragon that's going to come and eat our babies. That's not what Revelation 12 is telling us. But if you are going to take the Bible and Christianity seriously, you must understand that the devil is not and is never presented as a mythological or or figurative creature. Jesus himself called and viewed Satan as a personal and rational being. And we know of at least one one one-on-one encounter that Jesus himself had with Satan. Right? And the second thing you got to understand is he's a dragon. He's a serpent. In In other words, he's a thing. He's not a god. Get that. He is a thing. He is not a god. He is a creation. He has no power in and of himself. There is no yin and yang in Christianity. There is no thing in this world, in this cosmos, that can even come close to standing in equality with God himself. What you have is one of two things. You can only, as a created thing, you can only fit one of two, uh, or as a thing, you can only fit one of two categories. Either you are God, the creator, or you're everything else, created. Satan is not God. He is created. Yes, he's powerful. That's what the head and horns are about. But he cannot even keep his own footing. Look at verse 8, right? He can't keep his own footing. He's been cast down. His power is limited. He can only do what he's allowed to do. And when, he wants to get, when uh, God wants to kick him out, he's kicked out. He can't help it. So what the Bible teaches, just to to wrap up the who here that sets the stage for us, what the Bible teaches is that behind every evil and all evil 
in your life or in the world is not some impersonal force, but a personal, malevolent personality who is intent on reaping destruction, especially on God's people. So when we consider the who of this cosmic historic conflict, what we're beginning to see is that it's not just the random forces of chaos at work in our lives and in the world, but it's personal. Not only is it personal, we are caught up right in the middle of it. Let's move on. Number two, the how. The how of this conflict. How does this conflict unfold? It unfolds, I think what we see here in this chapter is that it unfolds both cosmically and personally. It unfolds cosmically and personally. The most, the most uh, simplistic way I can think to say this, how does the conflict unfold? The most simple way to say it is, the dragon rages. That's what he's doing. He is raging. He is thrashing. We get images of him thrashing his tail and chasing and panting and seeking to devour. He is trying to do whatever he can to destroy. That's all he wants. But why? Why does the dragon rage? Look at the first thing we read about. What is the first thing he wants to do? Well, the first thing, it's a weird image, right? The first thing he wants to do is to eat this child, (laughs) right? We're like, that's weird, right? Why? Why does he? Well, look at verse 9. Verse 9, he is called that ancient serpent. What does that mean? Well, it's taking us right back to Genesis specifically Genesis 3, and specifically Genesis 3.15, where God tells the serpent after he's deceived Adam and Eve this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan hates this child because this child is Jesus. Satan hates Jesus because Jesus is the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And Satan knows it. And Satan knows that the birth of this child means the end of him. And so he wants to do anything he can to destroy it. The dragon rages and he has been raging for all time. Since Genesis 3. Think about it. What happens when Jesus is born? What happens right when Jesus is born? King Herod is actively seeking to kill him. Think about it. When Jesus grows up, what happens? People, on more than one occasion, actively seek to kill him. What happens at the end of Jesus' public ministry? Those people finally get their hands on Jesus, and they do what? They kill him. The dragon rages. But here's the grand irony of of the story. They kill him. (laughs) And that's the exact moment that Satan, the dragon, is defeated. And that's what we're told here. And so what does he do after that? He then goes after God's people. He still rages, right? And the Christian expects this, that this will be the case until Jesus returns, that he will keep on raging. And so we stop now and we think to ourselves, okay, I can get who they are. I get, like, I guess kind of what's going on, maybe. Where's the comfort in this, right? We're supposed to find some comfort somewhere. Where is that? There's actually a ton, and we're going to end with a bunch of it. But for now, look at verse 6. Read verse 6 with me. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Why? 
where she has a place prepared for her by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And then at the end of verse 14, we read that that time in the wilderness is a time, a place to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Don't have a long time to go into that, but that, that phrase, a time, times, and half a time, it's a phrase that first comes up in the Bible in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 12. I got a question for you. You see, here we have another number in Revelation. What do we do with the numbers? What do we do with the numbers? We're supposed to crack the code. We're supposed to get our biblical calculators out and figure things out. I have a question for you. When studying U.S. history or whenever you hear this, when you hear four score and 77 years ago, do you think to yourself, man, I got to count that out and figure out what that means? Is that what you think? Where does your mind go? Well, if you're somewhat patriotic about our country, I don't know. You go to a time in our country's history that was very intense, was very broken, and was kind of a hallmark of our history, right? The Civil War, four score and 70 years ago. Uh, that was uh, Abraham Lincoln, if you didn't know that. Um, just <laughs> FYI. Anyway, here it is. When a Jew heard 1,260 days or three and a half years, they didn't think, I got to calculate that number. They thought along the lines of what you and I think when we hear four score and seven years ago. There's this time in between the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, before Jesus's birth, there was 400 years of history. And during that time, Jerusalem was occupied by foreign governments. And in one, you don't care about this, but just follow me here. In 167 BC, there was something known as the Maccabean Revolt, where a bunch of these Jews got tired of people occupying Jerusalem. So they just started um, in the countryside doing guerrilla warfare. Uh, And after a time, they finally had this one big battle and they finally won and they drove everybody out of Jerusalem uh, and there was great uh, celebration. You want to take a stab at how long the the guerrilla warfare was before the battle? Three and a half years or 1,260 days or a time, one year, times two years and half a time, three and a half years. Okay? Okay. And so after that event in 167 BC, three and a half years was always associated with a period of intense conflict followed by peace. She will go into the wilderness for 1,260 days. In other words, she will go into the wilderness for a time of intense suffering. But it's a place prepared for her by God. And at the end of it, there will be peace. So I want you to see, uh, there's a reason why I give you that history lesson, I promise, okay? You see kind of now how John lays out how this, uh, the how of this conflict. The dragon rages, yes, but here it is. He rages, one, for a set time, so he's limited, and he rages as a defeated foe. He's already defeated. Does anybody know, I don't know how many of you are hunters, I am, kind of. There's one thing I know as a hunter. There's one thing you do not do. You do not approach an animal that is wounded, especially an animal that is mortally wounded. Um, oh, I got a hunting story. I'm not going to share it. Anyway, you don't, you don't do it. Why? Even if it's little Bambi, right? If it's Bambi on the side of the road, you don't approach little Bambi if she's mortally wounded. Why? Because she will do anything and everything she can to protect herself because she doesn't know what else is going on. Why does the dragon rage? 
because he was mortally wounded. He is a defeated foe. He can do no more than he is allowed. He is on a leash. He is defeated, and so he rages, and he wants to cause as much conflict as he can. So here's the question. He wants to cause as much conflict as he can. I see that when I turn on the news. But what does this mean for me personally? Like, what does this mean for my life? Why does this matter? Here it is. Venture a guess that most of you are wildly confused about the chaos in your life. You are wildly confused about the chaos in your life, the pain in your life, and the struggle in your life. And because you're wildly confused about it, you are constantly seeking whatever remedy you can to address it. How to process failure. How to process why you can't seem to resist temptation. Why, how to process pain or doubt, right? All these different things. And here it is. Your gut instinct is to find natural explanations for what you're fighting. The biggest one that sticks out to me is the one that really is, is the one on this campus. The answer for everything on this campus is this. You're not trying hard enough. You're not trying hard enough or you're not working hard enough. I see it on your faces every single Wednesday night as you walk through that door, especially after fall break. You're not trying hard enough or you're not working hard enough. Get with it. Maybe you're one that just totalizes pain and suffering in your life, right? He doesn't want to go out with me anymore. So no guy must want to go out with me. She broke up with me. I must be utterly undateable. I failed this test. I am completely stupid and worthless. I got drunk this weekend and I call myself a Christian. Oh, so you're going to go to RUF and you're going to sing those songs about Jesus? That's, That's sweet. You know Jesus knows what you did during fall break, right? My parents got divorced. You didn't see that coming. You couldn't do anything to help it. Maybe somebody you loved was terminally ill. You couldn't pray a little bit more. Maybe you can't figure out why every relationship you're in, you cross those lines, right? You're just a whore or you're just a pervert. I feel the silence. And so I know you feel the weight of everything I just said. Are you at least not curious to ask yourself, why is it when you deal with pain and suffering and struggle in your life, why is it that your head and your heart immediately go to those things? To those answers? For those solutions? Why is that always the automatic? I'm barely even scratching the surface there. Who did I say the devil was and what did I say he does? Who did I say he is and what did I say he does? He's an accuser. He's a deceiver. And you are kidding yourself if you do not believe that that has everything to do with you. How you view yourself, how you view your problems, and how you view what you think are solutions in your life. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6. Catch this. 
Finally, he says at the end of his letter to the Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We love that verse, right? Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Catch what he says. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, get this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How do I process why my life is so hard? Have you ever wondered, if you, if you call yourself a Christian tonight, have you ever wondered why you struggle so much asking yourself, why do I struggle so much? What did Paul say? We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces of evil. You're kidding yourself if you do not believe that there is one who will use all the tools at his disposal to accuse and to deceive. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's how he works. It's how he rages. This is how he rages and specifically how he rages against the people of the Lamb. I feel so heavy. And I feel it in this room right now. To what end is this? It's the final point here. Point here. What's the end of this? If he's raging, what is the end of this? Well, what is Revelation 12 telling us? Here's your end times prediction of the series of Revelation. Here it is. What Revelation 12 is telling us is that the cosmic conflict that began in the garden raged forward into history, intensified at the advent of Jesus, intensified all the more when he left this earth and left his gospel and his church began to be built. It will continue as the gospel spreads and his church is built into all the world, forward into history until Jesus returns to finally put an end to all of it. And by the way, Jesus himself said, no one knows the day, not even him. So Revelation is not about figuring out when the day is. Spoiler alert. Okay, again, but wait. That's it. It's just going to keep going until Jesus comes back. Let's pray. What am I supposed to do with that? Martin Luther himself put it so well in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to this verse. I love this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That is amazing. I love that verse. Here it is. You and I, Christian, we live life in this world, but we live it knowing something. The end of this dragon is a sure thing. And the life of God's people is a sure thing. We shall, as the civil rights leaders took up as their own song, overcome. We know we will. 
We know that we will. We know that we will. How do we know that? It says it right here. It says it right here. In verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Something really interesting in the Gospels happens in Luke chapter 10. Luke sends out 72 disciples, uh, 72 of his followers. uh, Jesus sends them out two by two, uh, and he tells them, I'm giving you authority to go heal people and cast out demons. It's like, okay. So they go out, and they come back. And they come back, and they're like, Jesus, demons did what we told them to do. Catch what Jesus says to them. I saw Satan fall like lightning from where heaven behold i have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you now here's a question if you're a christian and you step on a scorpion does that mean it won't hurt you no (laughs) that's not what jesus is saying what is jesus talking about here it is he's talking about what we read about in revelation chapter 12 It's exactly what he's talking about. We have overcome. The dragon rages, the dragon deceives, the dragon accuses, the dragon assaults, but we have overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb. So the dragon can rage and the dragon can rail. The dragon can throw our sin in our face all day long. But when Jesus died on the cross and when he shed his blood for us, that great act set us free once and for all from any and all of our sin. And we are then given the right to reign. Meaning that whatever Satan accuses you of, that whatever Satan deceives you into believing about yourself, that cannot define you. Because you have overcome. You are such a failure. I know. But he was perfect for me. You are so worthless. I know. But he is worthy. You are such a hypocrite. I know. But he is always faithful and true. You are such a whore. I know. And he knows. Yet he loves me. Here it is. That would be such a great story, wouldn't it? But I have a sneaking suspicion. So many of you, even in this moment, are saying, yeah, that'd be great. But there's no way that will ever fit into my life. I want you to look at verse 14. One of the most beautiful Old Testament images that God gives about his relationship to his people. It's in Exodus 19. As the people have come... get Get the image here. In Exodus 19, the people have come to Mount Sinai. They've left Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. God has descended on this mountain in fire and lightning and thunder. God himself... They're at the foot of the mountain, and before God uh, gives, gives His Ten Commandments, this is what He says at the beginning of Exodus 19. He says this, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Why? And how I bore you on eagles' wings to bring you to myself. Return of the King. It's a great scene in the movie, but it's an even better description in the book. As Frodo and Sam lie exhausted on the hillside of a crumbling Mount Mordor, uh, Mount Doom in Mordor. Their doom is sure, and they're just waiting for it. And this is how Tolkien writes that scene. And so it was that Gwahir saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes. As down the wild wind he came, and daring the great peril of the skies, he circled in the air two small dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand, upon a little hill, while the world shook underneath them and gasped, and rivers of fire drew near. And even as he espied them and came swooping down, he saw them fall, worn out or choked with fumes and heat, or stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. Side by side they lay, and down swept Guahir. And in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away, out of the darkness and out of the fire. Don't lie. You wish that was you. You wish there was something close to that that could fit into your life and say, that's me. And so what will it be? You can believe the lies. You can believe that you're lost. You can believe that you are hopeless. You can believe that you are beyond reach. Or you can be swept up into the greatest story that has been ever been told. But here's the thing about that story, as I said. It is the story behind every other story. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the dragon rages... Because if we're honest, we know that we feel daily accused and deceived. Would you help us believe that what you have done for us in Jesus is so true that no matter how he rages, that nothing can touch us and one little word shall fell him. We pray this would be truth in our lives tonight through Jesus, we pray. Amen.